I'm glad to be back. I'm still in a little bit of a jet lag fog, and uh, it's hard telling what I may say today. It could be, could be fun for you, but um, we uh, traveled to Japan and Singapore and flew back that whole distance. Um, it was about 22 hours total in flight, and we crossed 13 time zones, and I have no idea where I'm at right now. So. <laughs> Um, but we had a great time. I'll talk more about it in weeks to come. But uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your prayers as well. Second Corinthians chapter 8. How many love the Bible? Raise your hand if you love the Bible. And how many want your lives to come underneath the Word? How many want that, the Word, to superintend our lives? And that certainly should be the case in Second Corinthians 8 as well. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Not only as we had hoped, but not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Writing to the Corinthians. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice, it is to your advantage and not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it, as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now, at this time, your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, and that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Father, I thank you for your word today, and um, if we believe it, and I believe that we do, then all of it is God-breathed. All of it is inspired. And it speaks to us today. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that in these next few minutes that you would quicken our hearts, give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. I pray, God, for your anointing upon my life, not because I've earned it or deserve it, but because I desperately need it. Pray, God, that in my weakness, your strength would be made perfect. I pray for supernatural 
strength and clarity of thoughts and clarity of mind. And I pray, God, that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room. And let us hear clearly, not with our posture being resistant, but with our hearts being open. Let us hear clearly what the Holy Spirit would say to us today. I ask God that you would captivate our attention, that we would have ears to hear, and that you would transform hearts and lives. And Lord, I take also just a moment um, to pray for those as we tomorrow will once again commemorate a day in this nation's history that was tragic. I pray God for those who have been affected by that, having lost a loved one, or having experienced pain themselves in that, I pray that you would give them peace. And Lord, as the moments after that tragic event brought this nation at least for a time to its knees, I pray that would happen again. And that we would call upon you and that you would hear our prayer and that you would heal our land. That is our desire. I pray God that you would speak now to us and uh, change us in these moments that we share together Today I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, are continuing our series in 2 Corinthians under the title of Sufficient, a theme that comes up repeatedly in the second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. The first section of 2 Corinthians, which was actually chapters one through seven, if you have been here, you know that Paul was spending much of his time actually defending uh, his role as an apostle and as a leader in the church. He was being accused, he was being criticized, he was being told he could not possibly be an apostle because he had had too much hardship, he had been beaten, he had been left for dead, he had had all kinds of things happen negatively toward him. They were accusing him because they said that he didn't keep his word when he said that he was gonna come back to Corinth. And so all kinds of things were leveled at Paul. And so in these first seven chapters, he is kind of defending himself and his apostolic ministry. Chapters eight and nine, which forms really the second section of 2 Corinthians, Paul is seeming, seems to change subjects altogether. And what he is talking about, I just want to give you this back story so you'll understand as we go further. He is dealing with um, the practice of collecting an offering for the churches that are in Jerusalem that have been stricken with famine and poverty. And he is very intent on making certain that that happens and that the saints in Jerusalem are well cared for. Now, while that seems to be a completely different subject than the first seven chapters, I will show you in just a minute how even that subject is tied a little bit, or in a, in a very real way, to his defense of his own ministry. Very specifically, chapters eight and nine are dealing with the stewarding of the resources that the Corinthians had. How should they handle the resources, the financial resources that God had blessed them with. And specifically, Paul deals with in their lives and in their church the issue of giving. 
Now it is very clear from the outset of this text that the subject of generous giving and the stewardship of resources is actually an integral part of Christian discipleship. It is not something that is beyond, everything else is important and how we handle our finances is secondary. It is clear from this text that how we handle our resources is a very important part of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. It was the late Haddon Robinson, a great preacher who said this, because it is unpopular, the idea that giving is a theological matter and a major expression of your Christian faith has been for the most part lost. In other words, because it's unpopular and people get a little bit queasy and preachers don't want to talk about it, it it becomes something or has become something that has almost been lost altogether in the church. Understanding that you, look at me for just a moment, cannot be a mature disciple of Jesus unless you steward your resources in a biblical way. Now, I'm not just picking these chapters. This is in 2 Corinthians And so, because we're going through the book, you get the privilege of hearing me talk about this over the next two or three weeks. Paul is dealing with this subject, and it it comprises two whole chapters, chapter 8 and 9, and it will end with this really powerful exclamation in chapter 9 and verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How many are thankful that God gave? Aren't you glad that God gave? He gave his own son. He so loved us that he gave his own son. And so Paul ends these two chapters talking about giving with this declaration, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that's what will be the summary of his teaching in chapter 8 and 9. I know that when we talk about giving, as I mentioned, some people get a little nervous and, you know, we like to talk big about our giving until it really hits us. There was a preacher that paid a visit to a farmer one day and the farmer had a pretty nice farm and the preacher said to him, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? Farmer said, well, absolutely I would. And the preacher said, if you had two cows, would you give one cow to the Lord? And he said, yes, I absolutely would. And then the preacher said, okay, if you had two pigs, would you give one pig to the Lord? And the farmer replied, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. (laughs) So uh, when it really hits us, then sometimes we want to stand back. Let me give you a little backstory to 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, I'm glad you finally laughed for a moment. I was nervous, but I'll forget this anyway, so it doesn't matter. After Paul's dramatic conversion, we know that he was converted on the road to Damascus, um, struck down by light. God said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul then responded to his calling. He uh, had his authority questioned by some of the more mature apostles, like Peter, James, and John. Like, who's this Paul guy? How how does he get to all of a sudden get on the circuit and become a preacher with us? And so he was a little suspect to some of the leaders of the church. 
And so Paul had to make his way up to Jerusalem, which was what was called the Apostolic Council. And Paul had to, if you will, kind of get ordained. He had to explain his experience. He had to say, this is my calling into ministry. This is how I know God has called me. And he shared his testimony and defended his call and the message that God had given to him. If you want to read about that, you can read it in Galatians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And we're going to read a little bit of that in just a moment. But the only advice that the apostles had when they got done listening to Paul, the only advice that they gave to him, they loved his message, they loved his calling. The only advice they gave to Paul was make sure that you take care of the poor. We read about it here. Paul said, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. I communicated to them that gospel which I am preaching among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. I wanted, Paul said, I wanted their commendation. I wanted them to ordain me. I wanted them to bless me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that would be the Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jew was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the Jews, or the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars in the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and to, and they to the circumcised. And look at this, they desired only that we should remember the poor. The very thing that I was eager to do. So when, they, when he got done interviewing with the bigwigs, they said, the only thing we really see that we want to make sure that you do, that maybe you have forgotten, is we want to make sure that you are taking care of the poor. So as a result of that, the collection for the church in Jerusalem became one of Paul's major objectives over his next 20 years of ministry. Paul wanted to conclude his evangelistic and church planting work in Eastern Mediterranean, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Achaia. And he wanted to conclude it by taking a gift that he had collected and he wanted to carry it to the church at Jerusalem and give it to the Jerusalem saints. And then Paul's plan was to go to the Western Mediterranean by way of Rome and Spain. You can read about that in Romans 15. And that was how he envisioned that he would end at ministry. And so this collection for the church at Jerusalem in Paul's mind was going to take place about midway through his ministry. It was an important part of his ministry because collecting this offering was a huge milestone but it would also validate his apostolic recognition. If he did that, then those who were questioning him would say, yes, you really are the real deal because you did what we asked you to do. Paul considered, as we all should, that giving was a matter of theology. It is seen in some of the words that he chooses, this grace he calls giving this grace. He calls it ministry. He calls it service. He speaks of a lavish gift. He speaks of a generous gift. This was more than just philanthropy. This was a theological program to Paul. It was a matter of deep spiritual concern. It wasn't just something you do if you want to. It was something that Paul saw was part and parcel 
of being a follower of Jesus. His commission to remember the poor was a divine obligation and a calling that really fit well his mission and objective to restore the fortune of Jerusalem. What's interesting is that the restoring of Jerusalem's fortune was actually something that was prophesied. If we read in Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah said this, I know their works and their thoughts. It will be that I will gather all the nations and the tongues and they shall come and they will see my glory. I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Look at this, then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and chariots and in litters on mules on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem saith the Lord as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. So Paul even saw some prophetic significance in that which he was doing. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is preparing this Jerusalem offering and he compares it to the free will offering that Moses took when they built the tabernacle. You remember that? When they needed to build the tabernacle, Moses said, everybody bring stuff. And they brought it. And finally, Moses said, you brought enough. You can stop now because we have enough to build the tabernacle. You even see Paul comparing that giving to the work that they did in the building of the tabernacle. Paul is actually seen bringing this gift in the book of Acts, Acts 24, 17, after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with a mob nor with a tumult. So Paul actually got to bring that offering to Jerusalem. But in these two chapters, chapters eight and nine, Paul is challenging the Corinthians to complete the collection that they had started at the end of his first letter. I know this is a lot of backstory, but this is important. In 1 Corinthians 16, remember 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Store up as he may prosper, that there'll be no collections. When I get there and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So they had started that. Now watch me, listen, don't get lost. They started that, but then there was a conflict with Paul. Then they started fighting. Then they started accusing Paul, and the offering stopped. Titus brought that report to Paul and said, hey, they're, they're angry with you. They're accusing you of things that you didn't do. But now the conflict has been resolved. And so Paul calls them to continue that offering, and listen, look at me, and to complete their theological responsibility. Paul's going to be back in Corinth soon, and he wants them to get back to the generosity that they had exhibited earlier. So in this first part of chapter 8, we're going to look at chapter 8 and 9 over the next three weeks, but in this first part of chapter 8, Paul gives eight timeless truths regarding our Christian stewardship, more specifically, our generous giving. 
And it's a theological matter. Let me share with you these eight truths very quickly this morning. Number one, generous giving is first and foremost a response of a heart that has been captured by the grace of God. What really spurns generosity among God's people is when they have really been captivated by God's grace. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. The word grace is the Greek word charis. It shows up in this two-chapter section ten different times. It's the highest concentration of the word charis in the entire New Testament. In two chapters, the word grace shows up 10 times. We hear phrases like freely willing, ready in mind, willingness, not grudgingly, not out of necessity, all liberality. We read these words in chapter nine, God loves a cheerful giver. God has given grace to the Corinthians and now their giving was part of his work in their hearts. They had experienced God's grace, and so their generosity flowed out of that encounter with the grace of God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, you know this text, he says, we are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How many are thankful salvation is not by works? Aren't you thankful for that? Saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, when we've been saved by grace, when we've encountered the grace of God, what flows out of our lives, we don't We don't do that to be saved, but because we are saved, what flows out of our lives is good works. His grace at work in our hearts is what stirs us to generosity. When you read some of the statistics, one would wonder, has the grace of God really been encountered by the American church. You ask the question, who are the most generous givers as a nation? Thankfully, America tops the charts. In Barna research, the three most charitable cities in America are all in Idaho. I found that interesting, all three in Idaho. On averaging practicing Christians in these three Idaho cities give $17,977 a year to the work of the Lord. That beats giving from people in New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles, which averages only $3,308 per person. Age also seems to make a big difference in giving. 84% of millennials give less than $50 to any kind of charity per year, even though charitable giving ranks high on their priorities. Christianity Today did a survey in 2022 of evangelicals and their giving to the work of the Lord. Only 10% of evangelicals give more than 8% to the work of the Lord. 
23% of evangelicals give between 2% and 8%. 26%, one in four, do not give anything to the work of the Lord. And 42% give less than 2% to the work of the kingdom. I feel like it could be getting a little uncomfortable in here, but that's, that's, those are the stats. One would question, have we really encountered the grace of God? Because if the grace of God stirs our hearts to generosity, and yet there is a lack of generosity among the people of God in America, there is something that has gone awry. Tozer says this, I do not think I exaggerate when I say that some of us put our offering in the plate with a kind of triumphant bounce as to say, there, now God will feel better. Tozer said, I'm obliged to tell you that God does not need anything you have. He doesn't need a dime of your money. It's your own spiritual welfare at stake in such matters as these. You have the right to keep what you have all to yourself, but it will rust and it will decay and it will ultimately ruin you. How many are glad you came this morning, all right? Giving generosity comes out of a heart that has encountered the grace of God. Secondly, generous giving need not be affected by one's personal financial standing. Look at what Paul says in verse two, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, look at this, and their deep poverty, these are the Macedonians, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Barrett in his translation calls this deep poverty rock bottom poverty. The Macedonian church was completely impoverished, but they continued to give in a generous way. Paul was now challenging the Corinthians to be moved by the Macedonians who had given not out of abundance, they didn't have much, not out of comfort, because it wasn't comfortable. He was challenging them to give out of their lack and out of their poverty. The Macedonians had suffered persecution. They had lost their jobs for their faith. They had been mistreated but it did not negatively affect their giving. They had great affliction, but it led to rich liberality. George Guthrie asked this question in his commentary, do we give primarily, do we give primarily out of our context of comfort, or do we give extensively even under severe circumstances? Never think, look at me for just a moment, never think that your lack eliminates you from generosity. I, I am so thankful for a father who just passed a few weeks ago who taught us generosity. When dad passed, mom and dad were very blessed and God did some amazing things in their finances over the last few years and they were very blessed, but it wasn't always the case. My mom and dad, when I was growing up, lived like most of us um, did or do. And he worked hard and he came home sometimes from Chevrolet with grease all over him and, and shavings in his arms and boils on his arms, but he gave, he taught us to give. When we did a paper route, we tied. When we mowed a lawn for $5, how many have a teenager that'll mow a lawn for $5? Anybody? All right, but when we mowed a lawn for $5, we gave 50%, 50 
cents, and then we had to give to missions. He taught us to give. Didn't matter how little we had, didn't matter how little mom and dad had, they gave, and God blessed them. This is not a commercial today. I'm just telling you that when we give even out of our lack, there are folks sitting here today, say, Pastor, you don't know my situation. There's no way I can. I'm just telling you I would much rather trust my resources to the God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills and who runs an economy that is separate from Wall Street than I would to try to manage it on my own. How many believe that to be true? If you'll trust God, God will bless you if you learn generosity. Number three, generous giving is sacrificial in nature. Paul said this, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. This poverty-stricken church in Macedonia, Paul said they implored us, they begged us, come and get our offering. I mean, you can probably hear Paul say, listen, I know you can't afford it. We won't stop by there. They begged us. We want to give our offering even though we are in rock-bottom poverty. They gave according to their ability, Paul said, and then they went above their ability and gave even more. It was their own free will. Paul points that out. It was important for Paul. He did not want to be accused of bleeding the people. Paul knew that sacrificial giving does not come from squeezing people. It comes from an encounter with God's grace. And can I just tell you, the reason that I am very comfortable preaching this today is because you'll have to do whatever you want to do. I'm not trying to squeeze anybody. I want you to encounter the grace of God in such a manner that you want to be generous because God has touched your heart with his grace. They pled with Paul to let them give generous giving is sacrificial in nature. Number four, generous giving is motivated by surrender to Christ's lordship. Paul goes on to say in verse five and six, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Notice what Paul says, before they gave anything in a tangible resource, they first gave themselves to the Lord. That, friends, is the prerequisite to generous Christian giving, is you give yourself to the Lord. God, I belong to you. I present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. By the way, that's in the Bible. That's what we're supposed to do. And when I give myself to you, when I first give myself, then it's easy for the rest to flow because I'm giving you myself in the first place. I love these words by John Powell and through Seasons of the Heart. He says, the genius of Christian spirituality is to integrate, look at this, the spirit of possession with the spirit of dispossession. The spirit of dispossession implies that all the good and delightful things of this world are never allowed to own, possess, or shackle me. Dispossession implies that I'm always free, my own person liberated from the tyranny that possession can easily exercise over us. You see, the key to Christian generosity 
is to recognize, everybody look at me, you and I own nothing. We have dispossessed ourselves of everything. It all belongs to him. We've given ourselves to him. And when we do that, it becomes easy to be generous because we're not holding on to something we own in the first place. Say amen if you believe. That's just true. That's scripture. Tozer said, as long as we think we own anything, that thing owns us. As soon as we know that we own nothing, then God owns us. You're holding on because I own this. I have to protect it. God's a lot more capable of protecting it if you'll let him own it so he can free you up to trust him. That's surrender that leads to generosity. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm really glad I came this morning. Number five. Generous giving is a matter of spiritual priority, not a secondary matter. Look at what Paul says here, but as you abound in everything, as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. You see, the Corinthian church excelled in gifts. All you gotta do is read 1 Corinthians. They came behind no other in gifts. I mean, they spoke in tongues, they prophesied, they healed, they had words of wisdom, they had words of knowledge. They were so spiritual that some of them even, there's this term we use in theology, realized eschatology, they thought the end time had already come. They were so spiritual that the end time was right on the verge. It was already there. They came behind in no gift. It's possible that that super spirituality had made them think that giving to Jerusalem or being generous to others was unnecessary if the kingdom had already or almost arrived. Can I just talk real honestly to you this morning as your pastor? The American church has excelled in just about everything. I mean, my goodness, we've got more faith books in Christian bookstores and on Amazon that you can shake a stick at. We have more spiritual gifts inventory. We have more people that prophesy and speak in tongues. We have people that do all sorts of, on the American church, we've got gifts. We've got beautiful sanctuaries. We had a worship night last night. We've got churches that have worship nights and, and we have all of these gifts. But Paul said, those are all nice. But generosity is not a secondary gift. See that you excel in this gift too. Sometimes we want to excel in the beautiful buildings and the worship nights and the, the, the fancy outings and all the things that we do and the lights and the classes and the teaching and the preaching. We want to excel in all of that. Paul said, it's not a secondary matter. See that you excel in this grace also. I love this prayer. The author is unknown. I do not thank thee, Lord, that I have bread to eat while others starve, nor yet for work to do while empty hands solicit heaven, nor for a body strong while other bodies flatten beds of pain. No, not for these do I give thanks, but I'm grateful, Lord, because my meager loaf I can divide, for that my busy hands may move to meet another's need because by doubled strength I may expend 
to steady one who faints. Yes, for all these do I give thanks, for heart to share, desire to bear, and will to live, flamed into one by deathless love. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ. It's a matter of spiritual priority. It's not a secondary matter. Number six, I'm almost done. Generous giving is rooted in our full understanding of Christ's gift to us. Look at these words. I love these, but you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The Macedonians, Paul said to the Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. They're an example of generous giving. So he's already given that example, but he said, let me give you a better example than the Macedonians. Let me give you the example of Jesus. Macedonians, they, they gave out of their poverty, and that's wonderful, and you want Corinthians to try to model after them. But let me give you the example of Jesus. He became poor so that the ungenerous Corinthians could become rich. Does anybody get that this morning? Paul said, I'm talking to you ungenerous, stingy Corinthians, and I'm saying you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, but for you he became poor so that we, all of us, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul was calling them to do the same. Become poor so that others might become rich. J.C. Ryle and his foundations wrote this powerful word. Who can estimate, I love this, the value of God's gift when he gave to the world his only begotten son. It is something unspeakable and incomprehensible. It passes man's understanding. Please get this. You may want to screenshot this. This is powerful. Two things there are which man has no arithmetic to reckon and no line to measure. One of these is the extent of that man's loss who loses his own soul. The other is the extent of God's gift when he gave Christ to sinners. Sin must indeed be exceeding sinful when the Father must needs give his only Son to be the sinner's friend. How many are thankful God gave his Son? When we grasp this truth, generosity for the sake of others knowing Christ will follow. Two last things and I'll quit. Generous giving at its core is a matter of the heart. Paul says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. What matters is one's willing heart, not how much the gift is. You all know the story of the widow Jesus, Mark chapter 12, he sat opposite the treasury and he saw how people put money into the treasury. By the way, can I just tell you, I know I've told you this before, but in the temple, there were like big um, trumpets or big shofar, like they were brass tubs that they would take the temple tax in and they would take the tithe in and they would take the offering. And they didn't have dollar bills, you understand. Everything was coinage. And so the rich people would go into the temple and they'd have those big heavy coins and they would throw them in those brass things and they would get really loud and everybody would turn around like, whoa, Mr. Jones gave that big amount and they could, because they could hear it clanging. That's what would happen. And people would be very braggadocious and prideful as they gave. And Jesus sat opposite the treasury 
and he watched people put in money. Many who were rich put in much, then one poor widow came and she threw in two mites. And guess what? Those two mites didn't make a sound. Those two tiny little mites, and when she threw those in the brass tub, there was no sound. So he called his disciples to himself and he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance. Didn't cost them anything. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had her whole livelihood. Generous giving is at the core a matter of the heart. And finally, number eight, generous giving is motivated by a commitment to all knowing Jesus. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to close with you standing. Just go ahead and stand. We won't be much longer. Hold steady if you would, but stand. Generous giving is motivated by a commitment of everyone knowing Jesus. Look at what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. But by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Let, let me explain that to you real quickly if I could, all right? It's still pretty early. Um, this is lifted from the story of the manna. Remember the story of the manna? And there would be manna on the ground, right? Every day, six days a week. And um, they weren't together any extra. Um, they, they weren't together on the seventh day because God was going to provide extra for them. But as they gathered, the text says, if you read Exodus, that those who tried to gather a lot they didn't really get any more than those who gathered a little because they had no lack either. The Corinthians had been blessed, but others needed to hear. You know, I've heard uh, people talk about the 50 rows of 100 that they fed the 5,000 with. I've heard people speculate, can you imagine what would have happened if... Um, they would have fed the first 25 rows and then by the time they got to row 25, row 1 wanted seconds and so they went back to row 1 and they started and then they wanted thirds and they never got to row 26 through 50 thank God it didn't happen that way there's plenty for all how many believe there's plenty for all but we must share it Generosity is motivated by a heart that wants everyone to know Jesus. David Livingstone was a Scottish missionary, was also an abolitionist, and he spent decades in Africa. People would always say, man, what a sacrifice you made. He said, people talk about sacrifice I've made and spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God which we can never repay. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthy activity healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. He said I did all that and I, I had this hope of 
eternal life. Is that a sacrifice? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of this life may make us pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. He also said, do not think me mad. It is not to make money that I believe a Christian should live. The noblest thing a man can do is just humbly to receive and then go amongst others and give. Listen to me, generous giving then and now is not to be carried out with an expectation of getting more. That's not why we do it. We've been taught that by some. They're wrong. It's a perversion. It's a manipulation of Scripture. It's not what the Bible teaches. I'm not telling you or encouraging you to be generous so you can get more. Biblically, generous giving is so that we can finish the work to which God has called us to do. Look at what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, 11. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. There's a work to finish. There's a gift that we've been given that is indescribable, the gift of Jesus. And may we give indescribably to finish that work. Let me just challenge you with this this morning, and then we're going to pray. Um, I was completely shocked. I didn't know it. The first morning in Japan, we met with some of the missionaries there to find out, first of all, there's 125 million people that live in Japan. 99 point something percent do not know Jesus. Less than 1% Christian. And the seventh, the seventh highest suicide rate in the world. More than 100 million people just in Japan are on their way to an eternity in hell. They are depressed. They are taking their lives. They are rich and wealthy. But they have no satisfaction soul. There's a quarter of a million people in this eight-county radius that we call East Central Indiana that don't know Jesus. There's a whole lot of folks that don't know Jesus. We don't give generously to get. We give to finish the work that God has called us to do. Father, I thank you for your unspeakable gift that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. I know, Lord, that for some it's uncomfortable to talk about money, but we're not, not talking really about money. We're talking about stewardship of what belongs to you, what you've given to us. You've not given it to us so that we would hold on to it. You've given it to us so that we would be a channel through which your blessing could flow to others. Teach us as a church, Lord, and I thank you because it's a very generous church. I thank you, Lord, for those who have learned this lesson, but for those who maybe haven't, 
pray, God, that you would stir in them the spirit of faith, the spirit of obedience to trust you, the spirit of passion for the lost, for the quarter of a million that are around us that don't know Jesus, for the hundred and plus million in Japan that have never even heard about you, for the countless millions around the world that unless someone tells them will never know about you and will spend eternity in hell. That's why we give to finish the work that you've called us to. So challenge our hearts today. You're worthy, Lord, of our full and intense worship. You're worthy of our lives and our full sacrifice. And you're worthy of our generosity. And I pray, God, that we would honor you by giving that to you. Your heads bowed for just a moment. I, I want to make certain that I ask, might there be someone here today that doesn't know Jesus as Savior? I know I preached to Christians today, but the Holy Spirit's here, and the Holy Spirit may be tugging at your heart. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. I want to surrender my life to Him. Is there anyone in this room that would say, pray for me? I want to give my life to Jesus. Anyone in this place this morning, despite upraised hand, anyone in this room. Let's sing this chorus as we close this morning.